Welcome back to One-on-One with the Cannon podcast show brought to you by WCANradio.com. As always, we thank you for being part of this program. And with me in the studio of WCANradio.com is... Is one of the co-hosts, Eric J. Meadows. It's such a pleasure to be here. Now, last week I didn't get an opportunity to give the national hotline out when we're talking about trafficking, and I'd like to do that now. That number is 888-373-7888. Again, it's a toll-free number, 888-373-7888. We have a great conversation that's going to be going on today, and I'd like to introduce our guest, uh, Pamela Pardone. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we really get into the program? Yes, um, I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and I have my own practice in Lorain, Ohio, for the last two, three years. And I specialize in trauma, anxiety, depression, and um, PTSD, and also ADHD, and a few other things that come along the way. But uh, I, I really help people to heal and recover their lives so that they can live their best lives forward. So, folks, get ready. We've got a great conversation going on. Okay, we sure do. On episode number five, we will discuss the post-effects of human trafficking from a professional evaluated by a professional psychiatric medical practitioner. Yeah. Right here, all of this on One-on-One with the Canon podcast show coming up right after this. Greetings, I'm Samuel Hampton II, producer at WCAN-TV. WCAN-TV is currently looking for quality programming for 30 to 60 minutes. If you have a message that you would like to share to the world, please contact me at 440-836-4591 or at tvwcan at yahoo.com. Thank you. Hello. My name is Shelly Mathis, and I am CEO and founder of Shelly Mathis Counseling Services. We specialize in mental health, trauma, and also substance abuse with an expertise in depression and anxiety for individuals, groups, couples, marriage and families, and also child and adolescents. If you're in need of assistance, give us a call at 330-577-8548. Thank you. Hi, I'm Joseph with Power to Become, an executive director with the John Maxwell team, bringing transformational training around the globe, making a difference when it makes a difference. We want to connect with you. Go to power2become.org or .com and connect with us now. You know, a lot of survivors from trafficking They escaped traffickers, but they still live with a lifelong malady, if I can call it that. How do you, as a practitioner, work to recover them in a lifelong struggle of of having to deal with this? Um, Many times in my practice, I like to study the childhood because many times incidents, experiences that you have in your childhood kind of replicate themselves as you get older in your adult life, especially like attachment issues that people may have as far as how they interact or form relationships with other people. So those are some of the things that I start with, but we also deal with 
um, just the individual trauma itself. And I try to get the person to understand what happened during the trauma, how it actually does affect brain cells, how it actually does affect neurotransmitters. Let me ask you this. Are the traffickers using the same technique? Are they finding these vulnerabilities in these uh, young adults or children? that are being trafficked? Yes. it's uh, Basically, it is a, a mental game where they get you attached to them in some ways. They could, some people call it the Stockholm Syndrome, where the victim falls in love with the captor, or they have trauma-bonded, where it's good for a minute, and then it goes bad, and then they have the blow-up, and then it's good for a minute, they're back in the honeymoon stage. So they fall into a pattern, like a lifestyle, that in some ways becomes addictive, because at least they know what's coming. It's familiar to to them. Now, dealing with this uh, uh, syndrome, what is it called again? The Stockholm Syndrome? Yes, correct. A person will go to that once they realize there's no escape. Isn't that correct? Or sometimes they just fall in love with their captor. And again, it's based on what their attachment style is in a relationship. They may feel safe with that person for some reason. They might be familiar with some of the behaviors or how they've been treated. So in many cases, they don't want to leave the captors. Then how do you break up that honeymoon uh, feeling that they might have? Um, education, knowledge, explaining to them what's actually going on, what's happening with them, and how perhaps their childhood experiences may have influenced their decision. When you say childhood experiences, give us an example. Are we talking about a broken home or since a lot of people are coming from all walks of life? Mm-hmm. Well, it's always easy to assume that a person comes from a broken home, but people could come from homes that is quote-unquote intact and still have the same issues because it's more about emotional attachments and how a person's feelings and thoughts were addressed or validated as they came up. But of course, if a person lives in a, a poor, poverty-stricken environment and they have dysfunctional family life, of course they will have higher risk and be more susceptible to it. But many times, people are searching for something, and if they're not getting it at home, they will search outside the home, whether it's toxic or non-toxic. Well, does your work now start with just the child, the young adult, or does it start with the parent? If the parent wants to be engaged, what I find is that many times parents don't really take responsibility for their part in the child's mental health. Wait a minute. You're telling me that if a child is trafficked and then he's recovered or he or she is recovered, the parent still doesn't want to take responsibility in what has happened to this child? Well, it could be the parent is the reason the child was trafficked. For instance, a person may come out and say they're LGBTQ. Parent doesn't accept it. They kick them out the house. The person is a minor. They have no money. They have nowhere to go. They're susceptible to a trafficker. So what you're saying, there's no preconditioning. They will automatically just give up their freedom. And initially, it's not that they're giving up the freedom because they present it to you as, hey, come on in. I'm going to help you. You're going to be safe with me. I'm your friend. So they present it in a way that's welcoming to you. And before you know it, you're involved in the cycle, and then it's difficult to get out of it. Well, it sounds like you don't have much recourse if a child is doing this voluntarily. Where do you come in? Well, many times it's not a voluntarily, they're not doing it voluntarily to begin with. It's a conditioning process. So over time, they might become accustomed to it, and then they may become tired of the, the lifestyle and want to get out. But in many cases, they might even go up higher in the ranks 
and become um, a recruiter. You're talking about a child that has been abducted or, or trafficked? A, a trafficked or that child could grow up to be an adult now, and now they're just another member of that business. It sounds like it, it's a very difficult cycle to break. It can be very difficult because it's very secretive. It's on the down low. So there are signs that a person may be trafficked, but many times we don't pick up on it, especially in the healthcare profession. Do drugs have to be a part of it? In most cases, it is, yeah, because that's part of their brainwash technique, get you hooked on it so that you need it. Wow, these are adults that are doing this, or this children that have gone through the whole cycle and have become traffickers themselves. Yes, correct. What is it that they're promising these children? I mean— The family— Safety, even through the threat, uh, the threats and and uh, misuse yeah, all and, that comes, and the abuse that comes with it. All that comes later. Once they condition you and they got you in there and they, and you're believing and trusting in them, you're thinking, oh well, you know, I'm just doing my part in it. You're not thinking, oh, I'm being abused or traffic until later on when it becomes obvious that that's what it's about. Because when it starts off, they don't start off like, hey. You know, they start off as your friend and I'm taking care of you. Because especially if you were estranged from your family and you have nowhere to go, you're going to, you know, in desperation, you're going to go with that person because you got somewhere to live. They, they're probably going to hook you up with some food, some clothes. For a while, they're going to treat you like your best friend. Then they're going to say, hey, why don't you do a favor for me? Hey, you know I love you. You, you got to do this for, you know, before you know it. And this is whether it's boys or girls. It could be boys or girls. 80% of sex traffickers or victims are women, but it could be male or female. And they could be children, teenagers, young adult. It could be anyone. Well, if you're talking about somebody that's a young adult and you want to school them in, in or take a preemptive strike on explaining to them not to get involved with these things, what would you tell them? How would you tell them to avoid this, even if they are experiencing these things? Well, you want to look for signs of someone who's a sex trafficker. Many times that could be someone who is older than you, someone that you do not know, that are making you promises, that are offering you money, that are giving you the comforts of home. I mean, right away, you should be suspect if you don't know that person. These children are also going to school, so there's a portion of education I mean, our education system should be looking for also. Of course, yes. Education system, especially if um, you're in a situation where there's a stranger hanging around that's watching the kids. Um, you want to be especially careful about who's picking that kid up, like is, is a, they're an assigned person that's supposed to pick them up. So all of that's very important, yes. Or even in the schools, too, you would want to look for when that child comes to school, is a child has bruises or sores, open wounds, how is their behavior? Is it erratic? Are they sleepy or tired? Just several different signs that you might be able to pick up on. Okay, let's say we've got a survivor. How do you launch into to dealing with this child? You know, when they finally come to you, they're a survivor from oh, child oh, trafficking. Sex trafficking? Yes. Well, we deal with the immediate symptoms. Many times it could be anxiety because they're fearful. They're afraid maybe they're going to get caught again or that their sex trafficker is going to come back and get them and they'll be back in the system. So, Are they, are they ever angry at you because of the uh, uh, Stockholm Syndrome that you've ta taken them away from this safety that they perceived? I never really experienced that because most of the time when people come to me, they're ready. Like, they're trying to change, so... I never really experienced anger, maybe anger toward the system or toward the trafficker, but not necessarily toward me. But 
first we do address like the anxiety and the depression and the PTSD, which could include flashbacks. It could be include avoidant behavior, uh, insomnia, poor appetite, I mean, many symptoms. So we want to first address the basic symptoms so we can get them stabilized enough so they can absorb whatever therapy we're going to provide for them. Now, you mentioned PTSD. We normally relate that to people that have been involved in combat in military. Sure, yeah. So how does PTSD present? I mean, you've given us a few examples, these anxieties. What, what are their triggers? Um, triggers could be anything. It could be a smell. It could be a song. They could pass by a certain house or a place. Or it could be anything that involved that trauma. And it's true that PTSD was first found in veterans, where they used to call it um, shell shock. Yes. And they came from combat. But they found that a person can have PTSD and not have been in war. So it's like two types of PTSD. You have just regular PTSD that we're all familiar with, then they have complex PTSD. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You say regular PTSD. What, what is regular PTSD? Is That's it, like you uh, went to war, combat, maybe you were in a car accident, okay. something like that, and you experienced some kind of trauma that caused you to mentally freeze or have repeated thoughts and memories about the situation to the point where you're in distress. Oh, so that could be even like uh, mom and dad having an argument. And dad gets a little physical with mom, mm-hmm. and then they have that makeup syndrome. and Right, right, the honeymoon period, then mm-hmm. it goes through it again. That is true, but it depends on the severity, duration, and the frequency of it. So mom and dad had a fight maybe once or twice a year. You might have suffered a little trauma, but you were able to recover from it. Mom and dad have a fight all the time. You saw your dad kill your mom. That's complex That's PTSD. Okay. Okay. So complex PTSD means that you had the trauma over and over and over for a very long time, where PTSD is where maybe you just had one car accident or you just had one tour. So that's what determines the difference. Okay. As a complex PTSD, Mm -hmm. I've heard about some children or young adults having seen a contemporary with them that's in the same situation that have recognized somebody getting beat severely and even killed. How do you get past that? How do you bring them back to a place where they can be safe? Well, you have to convince them that wherever they're at now, they are safe. So in order for them to process that many times, it's because they don't, like, play the whole story through. It's like they get stuck at one part like a broken record, and it just keeps repeating itself and repeating itself. So they have different treatments that we use to try to help them get past that, where you actually play out the whole scenario and see what actually happens. So then it's no longer that unknown thing about what you think might happen. Just play it out. So a good example is in the animal kingdom, they have stress and anxiety, too. So you're a deer, you're at the river's drinking some water, all of a sudden a lion or a tiger come after you. Right away, fight or flight, you run, you outrun it. When you get done, you're safe. Animals shake it off, go back to drinking water like nothing happened. If that happens to a human, they don't shake it off, they remember it. And it just keeps repeating itself over and over and over. And it doesn't have a cumulative effect. Oh, yes, it can. Over time, it have a drastic effect on their mental and physical health. Because a lot of times they don't sleep because they're afraid to sleep. They might be involved in drug and alcohol because they're trying to self-medicate. They have the depression because they're anxious all the time. So it's no fun living in anxiety and being always fearful and having this uh, sense of impending doom. So, yeah. 
And the time is... It, it actually sounds like uh, combat. You know, mm-hmm. in Vietnam, we, we first discovered this mm-hmm. PTSD. And living on a 24-hour high of adrenaline, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. could see why so many service people, even now coming back from Afghanistan That's or right. Iraq, how they were coming back with this constant feeling of mm-hmm. always up on a high, always right. ready. Hypervigilance is one of the symptoms of PTSD, which means that, say, for instance, if you live in a a neighborhood where there's a lot of violence, maybe there's a lot of shooting or drug trafficking or whatever. Well, that could cause a person to have PTSD because you're chronically living in it over and over and over, you know, or even like uh, it could just be one incident happening in this neighborhood that could trigger that PTSD. When a child is rescued from this cycle of violence, when they're going through all of these things that are taking place in their life, When you finally get them, how long between the time that they're rescued and the time that you get them and start work on them have they got to process that I am free from this, but they don't know what else is coming next? It depends on the person because some people are more resilient than others. It also depends on the degree of the abuse or trauma. So it's really hard to say. Um, One thing I, I try to get all patients to do is to accept reality. And that, for a lot of people, is the hardest part because as long as they don't accept reality, you can't really address what the issue is. So that's the main thing is to get them to talk about the truth, to see things for what it was, to really admit to themselves that, well, yeah, this did happen. But I survived. Like, I I got out of it. So how can we now put it to rest and move forward? I have some figures that say that almost a third of those that are rescued, that are supposed to be survivors, deal with, have to deal with suicidal thoughts. That is correct, yes. And it could be even more than a third. I think it's more like half of people. But Even after being rescued? Oh, yeah, because some of them suffer from false, quote-unquote, guilt and shame. To some degree, they feel like, if I could have did this, if I wouldn't have did that. But they're children. I mean, do they they really think that way? Yes, they do. They blame themselves. Kids will do that anyway. An example is you have a little kid, maybe 18 months, two years old. They think the world revolves around them. Why? Because when they cry... Mom shows up. Right. She picks them up. She changed their diaper. She feed them. They throw the box. They rattle out the the crib. Mom picks it up. Give it to them. And they so, throw it out again. And they yeah. throw it in the mom. Yeah. Yeah. It. yeah. So as far as they're concerned, the world, because they don't have a sense that. I'm a person in a world. They think I am the world. So mom and dad get into a fight. Dad walks out. Kid thinks dad's mad because I didn't pick up my toys or because I peed my pants or whatever. They automatically going to blame themselves. Even though it had absolutely nothing to do with them, they automatically, um, what they call, um, integrate it. They absorb it. Mm-hmm. And they grow up with false guilt. So what I find with a lot of people who are sexually assaulted or molested as children, they carry around a lot of guilt. Even though they were vulnerable, they were, had no control, they were manipulated and gaslighted. It was absolutely not their fault. But because they may have enjoyed it, because that part of your body is supposed to be enjoyable. But because they felt that way, they grow up feeling shame and guilt. When you say gaslighted, explain that term. Gaslighting is when somebody tries to tell you that whatever you think and feel is not real, is invalid, you know, you don't make sense. So you might say, you know, I feel that you disrespected me. And I say, oh, man, go on. You're just too sensitive. 
So they take it in and validate your thoughts and feelings. And that can also have a cumulative effect over a period of time. Because over time, you start to doubt yourself. And then you become indecisive. You know, you're not productive. you're You're not functioning because you start to doubt your own sanity. Now, it's been alleged that amongst minorities black, white, or I mean black, brown, and yellow, they don't nurture their children like the Caucasian race does. Is that a problem? I don't think that's true, because I don't think that you can really just put a blanket um, standard like that on everyone. I do feel like there's different parenting styles, however. So what I find in um, African-American or Latino, in most cases, is that they are more disciplinary in some ways, more stricter, um, in that with a lot of Caucasians, they have just more of a lackadaisical, if you will, style of parenting. You know, it's something good to know. Now, if you, as... uh how can I put you? As, as, as a person who's trying to recover a child and you've got uh, a new mom and a new dad, how would you start them out down the road to making sure that their child is well-equipped so that even on their first day of school, how to handle themselves? What, what do you tell them? I mean, this is a lot to put on a child. Well, when people start off with a um, new child, a uh, new baby, I tell them that you have to start raising that child as soon as it's born. And literally you can because you can put that baby on a sleep schedule, on a feeding schedule, so that baby knows, you know, this time I get fed, this time I wake up. You can start them off early. Even when they have behaviors, when they're like one, two, three years old, you're supposed to squash them behaviors right then. You don't let them go until they're four or five years old. I, I guess I'm, I'm pointing at the stranger danger. I know when I was coming up, I was taught stranger danger and it was on Sesame Street and right. everything else. We don't get a lot of that today. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, everybody's a friend. Yeah, in some cases that is true, but they should teach the child not only just stranger danger and to avoid people that they don't know, but also they should teach them more about their body parts too. Because a lot of times people grow up and they have no idea, you know. Well. I know. I was told, don't let somebody touch you down there. Right. And that, that's the extent of it. That's the extent, yeah. And and then when I, you know, as I grew up. You learned more and more. I learned more and more, but I wasn't learning it from mom and dad. Mm-hmm. I was learning it out of the street. But mm-hmm. then again, we had no preconception of uh, trafficking. Yeah. And that still goes on today, too. I don't think a lot of people are aware of it. That's why we're doing this sex trafficking training, because we're trying to bring more awareness to the community. Parents, especially teachers, medical professionals, we're trying to get everyone more aware of it and what to look out for so you can teach your child about the dangers of sex trafficking. Now, we've talked about children. What about adults, young adults, people that should know better? What are they doing in their lives? Well, many times they could have the same issues that children have. They could be homeless. They could be drug addicted. Some people tell me like they started off like maybe stripping and it just led one thing led to another. Initially, maybe they wanted to do it because it was making a little bit more money than I did when I was waitressing or when I was working at the nursing home. Do you think TV has a lot to do with it? I mean, because you see a lot of shows that are coming on, uh, P Valley and and a few other shows that are actually out there that promote this. Promote the sex trafficking? The the, the stripping, the making your body available. Well, I think TV do glamorize it in some ways, and in some ways they also exploit women in that manner, too. What do you mean? 
As far as uh, sexualized women, specifically if it's a foreign person, like um, they would sexualize Asian women or even sexualize black women. You know, if you see a show, black women or minorities might be playing the role of a drug addict or someone who's prostituting or something like that. So in some ways, women are exploited by in the TVs like that. So then you think that if children are watching this, they have the perception of the world as being, that's how the world is? Yeah, if they see it, like, if, if they see someone get shot on TV, they would think, well, yeah, you know, that's something that's commonly happens or is supposed to happen, but they don't really know the extent of it. They don't know what it looks like in real life, what it sounds like in real life. They don't see all the blood splatter and the blood dripping on the floor, and they don't see the, how it truly is. They see a perception that's provided on TV. So of course, when they go out into the world, yeah, you're gonna see them mimic some of those things. You know, Pamela, this is a great conversation. Uh, I wanna give you the last few minutes in, in telling us some more information that maybe we have not covered that you might want to relate to our listening audience. Well, first of all, I wanna just make clarify that I don't think, as far as race goes, white, black, or, uh, or Latino, it doesn't matter. Parenting styles vary throughout, and I know some Caucasian people that are really good parents, and I know some that are not so good, and same with Latinos and same with African Americans. So I want the audience to know that there's really no perception there as far as one is better than the other. But also, I feel like people who are medical staff, doctors, nurses, um, physician's assistant, anyone that's in the medical profession, usually they will come across someone who's being a victim of sex trafficking. And we need to be trained and more aware of the signs so that we can help these people be removed from that lifestyle. And we have the power to do so. At least 50% of people who are sex trafficked do seek medical help for various reasons. And it's easy to pick up on it if we know what the signs are. So then when these people are showing up in the medical field mm -hmm. and being treated for whatever is going on, correct, they should be able to see that. Yes, we should be able to pick up on the signs immediately. I want to let our audience know that Pamela Pardone is practicing this, what she talks about. And again, I want to give out that national hotline is being 888-373-7888. That's 888-373. 373-7888. And if you'd like to talk to somebody, you can text 233-733. Text 233-7333. There is a movement that's going on in this country right now that's bringing awareness to sex trafficking or trafficking of human beings. You know, Pamela, I'm so glad you came on today. I, I hope that you can come back and give us some more information on all the other things that are going on. Thank you for having me, and I would be more than happy to come back. Okay. Okay, now it's my turn to bust in here. The old clock on the wall says, that's all. So we thank everyone for being part of One on One with Cannon Podcast Show. And always remember, life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Until next time, have a good day. <laughs>